Chapter six, third factor, right speech. A statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken, blameless, and not faulted by wise people. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken politely. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. The Buddha. Anguttara Nikaya V. Uh, 198. Right intention, the second factor of the Eightfold Path, sets the stage for the next three factors, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Grouped together as practices of virtue, these three factors are concerned with how the intentions of wise renunciation, goodwill, and compassion are expressed in our daily lives. These virtue factors also lay the foundation for the last three practices of the path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. In starting with right speech, the three virtue factors begin with the activity through which we interact most with others and with which we most frequently impact <coughs> others directly. What we say and how we say it also have a direct link to our cultivation of the path of liberation. When we mindlessly speak or remain silent, we lose an opportunity to include our speech as part of the Eightfold Path. Right speech is described as both speaking what is skillful and abstaining from speaking that, from speech that is unskillful. Lying, slandering, and engaging in harsh or pointless speech are defined as unskillful. Words that are honest, timely, useful, friendly, and create social harmony are considered wise and skillful. It's interesting how, you know, after reading what the Buddha wrote, we see a lot of that this came from the Buddha, these yes. words that we're reading. But the repetition is also good in that um, I think there are some sacred prayers or uh, passages in, in, in many spiritual practices that are just repeated almost like mantras to keep them in our, the forefront of our awareness and, and to keep them ingrained in our core, sort of. So I like it. Practicing right speech requires a dedication to mindfulness, especially to being aware of the impulse to speak before we actually speak. One approach for doing this is to develop the custom of pausing before speaking. Perhaps a pause short enough to go unnoticed by others. This pause may give us the time to realize what we are intending to say. Knowing this may be enough for us to refrain from saying something we would <coughs> later regret. Have you ever been to a Quaker meeting? No, what's because it like? Well, I went for, for, for a New Year's Eve uh, when I was a teenager, and there would be like five minutes between anyone speaking and the next person speaking, and they were all talking about like significant things that had happened in their life in the last year. The quiet, the pause was so great the because space. like like in my family, if you wanted to get a word in, you had to interrupt someone. You know, it was the complete opposite of that. Mm -hmm. You probably have been in those situations. Oh, I think I think your family and mine may be the same family. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother-in-law, he was not of this kind. So he could never, he could never get a word in. <laughs> and, he, and he always, um, you know, would point that out. Hey, you interrupted me. <laughs> because he took a breath. Oh. <laughs> um, when we are uncertain what is skillful to say, it can be useful to consider the Buddhist guidelines for speech. To speak at an appropriate time. To speak honestly to speak politely, to speak what is beneficial, and to speak with goodwill. 
It is best to avoid speaking at a time when what we say can't be understood or when it's not useful for the person we are speaking to. Even if something is true and important, it is best to wait for the appropriate situation to say it. Dishonesty takes us in the opposite direction from a path to liberation because the goal is to become truthful and authentic in all we do. Dishonesty blocks the path to the goal. Honesty, in contrast, is mindfulness out loud. I missed that. That's a really neat statement. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness out loud. Mindfulness out loud. Lovely. When combined with the five other guidelines, honesty creates trust and ease in everyone. Politeness is respectful speech that expresses respect for others. Instead of demeaning or belittling, belitt uh, pardon me, let's start again. Instead of demeaning or belittling others, polite speech enhances the dignity of both the person spoken to and the speaker. Speaking only what is beneficial saves a lot of time and effort. Not only does it free us from having to say things that have no value or useful purpose, it also frees us from having to make amends for speech that is not beneficial, that brings pain. Speaking with goodwill means to speak in ways that are kind and concerned with, with the welfare of others. Without goodwill, the heart will remain closed or numb. With goodwill, our speech supports the continuing opening of our hearts. It's, it's such a contrast like to what you were describing Monday about, about your legal practice, but mm -hmm. also just generally about speech that it either, the way it can either connect people together or divide them. Right. And, and I have, I had a question on Monday that I didn't raise and I'll raise it now and maybe we can talk a little bit about it at the end. I don't know if others experience this, Kim, but there are times when, for me, in trying to decide what to say in a certain situation, that it feels like, seems like, there are multiple truths that are diametrically opposed. So sometimes it feels like in speaking, and, and maybe it's because I need to do more, more work in my practice, but sometimes it feels like there are, there's one truth that lies over here, and the next thing I say, which is also true, seems the opposite of that. Does that, does that? Oh, yeah, do yeah. In fact, um, It's a, pr a little bit of a problem I've had, I think, with Buddhism where, where um, you know, how can you be honest when, when there is no truth? Mm, exactly. And um, so I did two, two pieces the last, you know, I do these art pieces every day. And one, one way, one day it was... Um, I can't, I can't remember. Here. Um, moral outrage harms all. And then the next day I did moral outrage helps all. Yeah, and, and both are kind of true. And we're reading this Joan Halifax book. Joan Halifax is at, in uh, Santa Fe. And she, the book she's reading talks about how sometimes moral outrage puts, takes you to a place uh, to, to beneficial action, and other times it's just destructive. So, um, so anyway, so how do you say that with confidence? Maybe. Like, like if I were to say you, to you, I, I think you're doing the wrong thing. So I should know in my mind that I might be wrong, right? That I'm just, that I might be saying this because I thought it might be helpful, but it might be completely 
anyway, go on. You started. Well, talking. I was going to say maybe a combination of those, which doesn't really address the question, actually, but I'll state this. A combination is to say that action attached to moral outrage can be beneficial or harmful. Except here's the, the second situation you posed was this. You can say to me, I think what you did was harmful. But the repercussions of our actions, we really don't know all of them. We might know the instantaneous, immediate one, but the long-term ones may actually be tremendously beneficial. So um, this is what I love about our practice. Every question we ask has 10, 10 different answers that'll, that might take us right back to our first answer or completely If you were to say to me right now, this is one example, I think what you did was harmful. Well, that may be true in the moment, but ultimately it may bring about so much more good long-term. So how can we categorize something? I mean, to say in the moment what you did was harmful, the impact right now seems to be harmful. But the, the following consequences of that in the moment harmful act can have so many beneficial ones. So ultimately, yeah. what was it, harmful or not? And, and uh, I wanted Trouty to come, maybe she'll come next week, mm -hmm. and really talk about what the Buddha meant by when he said right. And Peg wanted, wanted it to mean not, not like right and wrong, like a dualistic thing, but mm -hmm. according to her, and she's a Sanskrit scholar, mm -hmm. that it did mean right versus wrong. It, we'll see. We'll see what's said. Yeah. So on page 37 on top, would you like to start? What we say, that's where we are, right? What yes. We say, what we say has a powerful relationship to how we feel. The uncomfortable inner states that give rise to unskillful speech are strengthened by unskillful speech. One reason to avoid such speech is to avoid the agitation that comes with regret. Conversely, a reason to engage in skillful speech is to create conditions for happiness and peace. The inner well-being that supports skillful speech is strengthened by skillful speech. Mm -hmm. It's a rich paragraph. I love that one. When it is difficult to speak skillfully, it may be possible to at least restrain ourselves from saying things that will cause harm. Avoiding unhelpful speech prevents a great amount of social discord and injury. At times, one of the most powerful, challenging, and wise practices we can do is to simply hold our tongue. Abstaining from unskillful speech is not an end in itself. However, if we want to cultivate the freedom of the Eightfold Path, it can be useful to investigate the inner conditions that motivate such speech. What does it teach us about ourselves? Are we overly stressed? <coughs> Are we being unduly influenced by desire, aversion, and or fear? What are we trying to accomplish through such speech? If we could settle deeply into our hearts, what would we say? That's a beautiful line, mm -hmm. isn't it? it if, is. we could, if we could settle deeply into our hearts, what would we say? What would you say, Kim, if you could settle deeply into your heart about the sort of speech you would like to use? The word would be to connect with the other person. At, at, uh, yes, Monday I was thinking, if we had to evaluate our speech on a scale of zero to ten, whether it was right or wrong, you know, what, what would we choose? And, you know, I would choose maybe five, four or five. How about you? Oh, it's all over the place. Sometimes it's zero, sometimes it's seven and a half. You know, it just yeah. depends on where I am. I, I do, 
I, since coming to Appamata, I do practice the pauses more. And I find that at least when I walk away from a sentence, when I've finished a sentence, more and more, I'm at peace with the sentence I put out into the universe. And that to me is a good thing. I think when, I, I experience more right speech at Appamata than I have in any other place. Right. And, and that's neat. It is. And even if we succumb to our unskillful impulses and engage in unwise speech, we can still gain valuable insight into ourselves, considering whether or not our speech expresses goodwill, friendliness, or compassion can be the beginning of practicing right speech. If we find that our speech doesn't have these qualities, then we have a golden opportunity to find out why. What does such speech show us about ourselves? If we truly care about ourselves, then reflecting on these questions can inspire us to find alternate ways of speaking. Rather than being discouraging or providing occasions to beat ourselves up, such self-knowledge can fuel our practice. These kinds of reflections are useful so that we don't practice right speech simply as a set of rules, but as a way to support <coughs> our practice on the path. These investigations help us get in touch with our inner life and the inner wellsprings of wisdom and caring from which we can better consider what to say. It is good to remember that our speech arises out of the ecology of our inner life. If the inner life is well cared for, it is much easier to speak wisely. And I think this is the point where, where right view and right intention need to come first. That's kind of our inner life, who we are. And this, if the speech is not coming from there, then it, you can't just decide, forget about those things and say, I'm going to do right speech. There has to be this foundation. I do love that one of the things we have talked about when we've met over this book, Steps to Liberation, is how setting an intention before one goes into, say, a study meeting or a meeting with someone else what, and, and, and deciding what your intention is. I mean, be very specific about what you want to bring to that other person and yourself is so important. I agree. And the, um, the five minute meditation that Flint was pointing to today about being so important um, allows you to come through the door. At another Zen center, the, the priest was talking about how important it is to leave behind the world as you step through the door. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so just being there with the person and not being like at the effect of all these things that have happened to us seems important too. I agree. By practicing yeah. right speech, we are not only cultivating the eightfold path, we are also taking care of both others and ourselves. Right speech benefits the world and strengthens our path of liberation. Page 39, Reflections and Practices, Right Speech. Week one, the experience of speaking. One of the most challenging but also rewarding areas of mindfulness practice is mindful speech. If we tune into ourselves, we can experience the relationship speaking has to our bodies our emotional lives, our beliefs and ideas, our preferences, and the ways our, lives ex our life experiences have conditioned us. Please spend a week being mindful of these areas when you speak. It might be helpful to keep a journal recording what you notice. You might find the following sequence helpful. Day one, focus on noticing what is happening in your body as you speak. Day two, focus on how you feel emotionally when you speak. Day three, focus on noticing what motivates you to speak. Why do you say what you do? Day four, be mindful of what you are paying attention to when you speak. Are you focused on your words? Do you pay attention to the people you're talking to? 
How aware of your body are you as you speak? Day five, keep your attention anchored in your body as you speak. Notice how this affects what you say. And day six and seven, repeat some of the practices from the first five days. Week two, honesty. This week's exploration of truthful speech has two parts, listening well and speaking honestly. Spend the first few days of the week devoted to listening to others more carefully than you usually do. How does this affect what you say? As you listen, notice what inner dialogue you might have. Are you rehearsing what you will say? Are you commenting on what you are hearing? Do you get easily distracted by unrelated thoughts? Spend the rest of the week noticing what it's like to be honest and what it's like when you are anything less than honest. Perhaps in most conversations, this is not a particularly important issue because honesty is easy. However, what does it feel like when honesty is not so easy? Or when the honesty is an important part of the communication? What does it feel like when you are avoiding honest communication? What motivates this avoidance? If you find yourself saying something that is not truthful, Spend some time investigating why and how you did this. Find a person you can talk to about the role of honesty in conversation. You might ask them what they have learned in their life about speaking truthfully. Week three, social harmony and speech. When the Buddha advised us to avoid slanderous speech, he also encouraged us to speak so we can unite those who are divided and encourage those who are in, united. During this week, give special attention to saying things that create social harmony and concord. Avoid speaking badly about anyone. Instead, look for na natural and appropriate opportunities to speak well with others, including the people you are with. Notice how you are affected by speaking in such ways. Week four, motivations to speak. During this week, notice why you say what you say. What motivations are behind what you do and don't say? Notice the strength of your impulses to speak. What affects the strength of this impulse? When are you mindful of your motivation and impulses to speak? How does that affect what you say? Now, I, sometimes I think about what really should be taught in school. And this, this would be one of those things, how to speak, and that we don't do. I mean, I, I, can you think of anything more basic than this? Absolutely, especially when you're limbically engaged, which all of us are, but children can be more so. Taking that long, deep breath, to bring the body to the frontal lobe, to the more connected, logical, you know, arranging our words, part of the brain, I think is vital to learning how to be an adult and a child. <laughs> when you know you will be speaking to someone, prepare yourself by reflecting on what intentions you might want for the conversation. How does a conversation unfold if you have reflected and set an intention beforehand. During some of your conversations this week, practice pausing and relaxing before you speak. Don't rush in to contribute to a conversation. Take a moment to pause and relax before you speak. Notice how this affects what you say and how you say it. Choose some conversations during this week in which you can emphasize saying things that are pleasing, heartwarming, and meaningful for the people you are speaking with. Notice how this affects you. And that was such a beautiful, well, that was the essence of meeting with Flynn this afternoon in inquiry, because he was so present, so with each of our words, and his whole heart was there and his, you know, his smiling Buddha spirit. You could feel it even when he didn't say a word. That was lovely.
Yeah, it's nice when someone's like that where they're giving the impression that nothing else is going on in their life. You know, that they don't know people who are dying. They don't have troubles. Like one time Flint did talk to us about how someone, um, a neighbor had cut down all the trees around his house that gave him this privacy. And, you know, and that, that caused initially some anguish for him until he found a solution. But, um, but he does give that feeling that you're the most important thing in the world. You're the only thing in the world. The only thing, <laughs> yes. Oh. So it will be fun you. for us to, to notice our speech this week. I'm excited about the opportunities to find why and where I do things. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this time. So this was fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I'm so glad we got to read it again. Yeah. Have a okay. great day, and I'll see you, if not before, next time we meet on this lovely books. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye, Kim. <laughs> Right speech, definitions of right speech, and what is right speech? Abstaining from lying, from divisive speech, from abusive speech, and from idle chatter. This is called right speech. Abandoning false speech, one abstains from false speech. One speaks truth, adheres to truth, is trustworthy and reliable one who is no deceiver of the world. Abandoning malicious speech, one abstains from malicious speech. One does not repeat elsewhere what one has heard here in order to divide those people from these. Nor does one repeat to these people what one has heard elsewhere in order to, buy, to divide these people from those. Thus one is someone who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendships, who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delights in concord, a speaker of words that promote concord. Abandoning harsh speech, one abstains from harsh speech. One speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear and lovable, as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many and agreeable to many. Abandoning gossip, one abstains from gossip. One speaks at the right time, speaks what is fact, speaks on what is good, speaks on the Dharma and the discipline. At the right time, one speaks such words as are worth recording, reasonable, <laughs> Sorry. moderate, record. Okay. And, and beneficial. And then it cites um, where that is from, MN 27.13 and other places. Yeah, if you guys want to see, I yeah, I don't, like, he had that little key about where all that stuff's from, but I don't, I don't remember. Um, right speech and other path factors. And how is right view the forerunner? One discerns wrong speech as wrong speech and right speech as right speech. And what is wrong speech? Lying, divisive, tail-bearing, abusive speech, and idle chatter. This is wrong speech. One tries to abandon wrong speech and to enter into right speech. This is one's right effort. One is mindful to abandon wrong speech and to enter and remain in right speech. This is one's right mindfulness. Thus, these three qualities, right view, right effort, and right mindfulness, run and circle around right speech. Right speech in accord with the Dharma. And how, householders, are there four kinds of verbal conduct not in accordance with the Dharma and righteous conduct? Here, someone speaks falsehood. When summoned to a court or to a meeting, or to his relative's presence, or to his guild, or to the royal family's presence, and questioned as a witness thus. 
so good, man. Tell what you know, not knowing, he says, I know, or knowing, he says, I do not know. Not seeing, he says, I see, or seeing, he says, I do not see. In full awareness, he speaks falsehood for his own ends or for another's ends or for some trifling worldly end. He speaks <coughs> maliciously. He repeats elsewhere what he has heard here in order to divide those people <coughs> from these. Or he repeats to these people what he has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those. Thus he is one who divides those who are united, a creator of divisions who enjoy discord rejoices in discord, delights in discord, a speaker of words that create discord. He speaks harshly. He utters such words as are rough, hard, hurtful to others, offensive to others, bordering on anger, unconducive to concentration. He gossips. He speaks at the wrong time, speaks what is not fact, speaks what is useless, speaks contrary to the Dhamma, and the discipline. At the wrong time, he speaks such words as are worthless, unreasonable, immoderate, and unbeneficial. This is how there are four kinds of verbal conduct not in accordance with the Dharma and righteous conduct. And how, householders, are there four kinds of verbal conduct in accordance with the Dharma, righteous conduct? Here's someone abandoning false speech, abstains from false speech, when summoned to a court or to a meeting or to his relative's presence or to his guild or to the royal family's presence and questioned as a witness thus, so good man, tell what you know. Not knowing, he says, I do not know. Or knowing, he says, I know. Not seeing, he says, I do not see. Or seeing, he says, I see. He does not in full awareness speak falsehoods for his own ends or for another's ends or for some trifling worldly end. Abandoning malicious speech, he abstains from malicious speech. He does not repeat elsewhere what he has here, here in order to divide those people from this nor does he repeat to these people that he has hear, heard elsewhere in order to divide these people, those from those. Thus he is one who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendship, who enjoys concord, rejoice in concord, delight in concord, a speaker of words that promote concord. Abandoning harsh speech, he abstains from harsh speech. He speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the air and lovable, as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many, and agreeable to many. Do you, do you want to read that next one too, Stephanie? Or I guess not. Okay. I'm okay, go ahead, Anne. Okay. Abandoning gossip, he abstains from gossip. He speaks at the right time, speaks what is fact, speaks on what is good, speaks on the Dharma and the discipline. At the right time, he speaks such words as are worth recording, reasonable, moderate, and beneficial. That is how there are four kinds of verbal conduct in accordance with the Dharma. Righteous conduct. Self-purification through right speech. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Pava and Kunda, the silversmith's mango grove. Then Kunda the silversmith went to the Blessed One and, on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, the Blessed One said to him, Kunda, of whose rites of purification do you approve? The Brahmins of the Western lands, Lord, those who carry water pots, wear garlands of water plants, worship fire, and purify with water. They have declared purification rites of which I approve. 
Kunda, the purification rites declared by the Brahmins of the Western lands are one thing. The purification in the discipline of the noble ones is something else entirely. And how is one made impure in four ways by verbal action? There is a case where a certain person engages in false speech. When he has been called as a witness to a town meeting, a group meeting, a gathering of relatives to the guild or the, the court and is asked, excuse me, come and tell good man what you know. If he doesn't know, he says, I know. If he does know, he says, I don't know. If he has, hasn't seen, he says, I have seen. If he has seen, he says, I haven't seen. Thus he consciously tells lies for his own sake, for the sake of another, and for the sake of a certain reward. He engages in divisive speech. What he has heard here, he tells there to break those people apart from these people here. What he has heard there, he tells here, to break these people apart from those people there. Thus, breaking apart those who are united and stirring up strife between those who have broken apart, he loves factionalism, delights in factionalism, enjoys factionalism, speaks things that create factionalism. <clears throat> Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I was, I was, as we were reading this, I was thinking, you know, if, if the only thing we were voting for was right speech, that would be enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, really kind of politics in general, kind of like that. They really, you know, it's very div divisive. My party's better, but I agree, I agree, right? Right speech is not um, Donald Trump's wheelhouse, for sure. And this helps me reflect on how much bad karma I've created in my lifetime because I was a, I still am, but not practicing, a family lawyer litigator. So I spent 30 years in divisiveness and wrong speech and... Um, uh, factionalism and right and wrong and winners and losers and um, I think that's what eventually made me leave without even knowing about the Dharma. I just couldn't do it anymore. Could you have done it any better? No, not in that model. No. And not to, not to serve your clients, I guess. No. Now when I was a mediator, it was easier. Um, but as a litigator representing one side, and I guess the best I could do it is that I never felt I was representing the adult client. My focus was always on the best interest of the children. And so I was able to generally um, get more for the children when the parent, and usually unfortunately in my experience, it was the men wanted to give less and also get the other parent, and usually it was the mom, to not give up as much and therefore put her kids at risk. So in that sense, I was able to affect change in the system in a small way, but the system itself is flawed. Hmm. Okay. Who's reading now? Nelda. Oh, I beg your pardon. Where are we? Are we past he engages in idle chatter? No, just not in that. That's, yeah, right there at the top. He engages in abusive. Okay. He, he engages in abusive speech. He speaks words that are harsh, cutting, bitter to others, abusive of others, provoking anger, and destroying concentration. He engages in idle chatter. He speaks out of season, speaks what isn't factual, what isn't in accordance with the goal the Dharma, and the Vinana, Vinaha? It's called Vinaya. Vin, Vinaya, it's the rules of the monks. Okay, and the Vinaya, words that are not worth treasuring. This is how one is made impure in four ways by verbal action. I have a question. Uh, would you go down, uh, please? Um, 
because uh, what is the what is mean idle chatter? Oh, cheesemith. Cheese <laughs> hmm? Cheese oh, gossiping. Okay. <laughs> well, gossip or just yeah, not it could yeah. also just be like talking about like things that aren't of any any um, importance or and. I remember here, and I don't remember where in this course that the guy who's leading it said this, but it talked about how, like, when you're a monk, it's like a different ball game. Like, there's a certain amount of idle chatter, not gossip per se, but just idle chatter that we engage in as people to to kind of foster connection and to, um, you know, it kind of has a role in a way in our world. But that I think he's talking about it being, yeah, maybe more like. Um, and this is for the, maybe more for the, if it's in a strict sense, maybe for the monks where you just don't do that at all. And maybe in our sense, like it's maybe okay to have small talk, but not to be gossipy. Hey, mm -hmm. Anne. Yeah. I, I think also this is a good um, description of what Peg and Flint would talk about when we're doing an intensive and they would mm. maintain silence. And so often, um, and Sandra, I know there are a couple times you may remember this. You and I even started this one time, uh, arriving early in the morning and talking outside uh, mm. on the, on you know, on the porch before we entered. Um, mm. But all that kind of thing, you know, maintaining silence instead of just, hi, how you doing? How was your night? You know, and, you know, that kind of stuff. And we, we, when we do that, we re recognize how much in the rest of our lives we do idle chatter. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Right. But like Anne yeah. said, I think sometimes there is that human um, function where we are doing it for connection. Yeah. But I, especially especially in an intensive or when you're practicing this, um, you're very conscious of the words you speak and when you speak them. Yeah. 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 Thank oh, you. Sorry. Where, where, where are yeah. we? Yeah. Somewhere around here, right? There? Okay. Mm -hmm. There is a case where a certain person abandoning false speech abstains from false speech. When he has been called to a town meeting, a group meeting, a gathering of the relatives, his guild or, or of the royalty, if he is asked as a witness, come, tell, good man, what do you, what you know? If he doesn't know, he say, I don't know. He, if he does know, he say, I know. If he hasn't seen, he say, I haven't seen. If, if he has seen, he say, I have seen. Thus he doesn't consciously tell a lie for his own sake, for the sake of another, or for the sake of, a, of any reward. Abandoning false speech, he abstains from false speech. He speaks the truth to the true, firm, reliable, no deceiver of the world. Abandoning divisive speech, he abstains from divisive speech. What he has heard here, he does not tell there to break those people apart from these people here. What he has heard there, he does not tell here to break these people apart from those people there. Hmm. Thus, Reconciling those who have broken apart or cementing those who are united. He loves concord, delights in concord, enjoys concord, speaks things that create concord. Um, so now it backs up to right intention and right view that those are established before the person even opens their mouth. And mm -hmm. the right intention is concord, right? before anything is said, I think. Abandoning abusive speech, he abstains from abusive speech. He speaks words that are soothing to the ear, that are affectionate, that go to the heart, that are polite, appealing and pleasing to people at large. 
Abandoning idle chatter, he abstains from idle chatter. He speaks in season, speaks what is factual, what is in accordance with the goal, the Dhamma, and the Vinaya. And he speaks words worth treasuring, seasonable, reasonable, circumscribed, connected with the goal. This is how one is made pure in four ways by verbal action. Teachings on truthfulness, false speech. For the person who transgresses in one thing, I tell you there is no evil deed that is not to be done. Which one thing? This, telling a deliberate lie. Thus one should never knowingly speak a lie, either for the sake of one's own advantage or for another person's advantage or for the sake of any advantage whatsoever. One day the Buddha came to his son Rahula, pointed to a bowl with a knife, with a, with a little bit of water in it, and asked, Rahula, do you see this bit of water left in the bowl? Rahula answered, uh, Yes, sir. So little, Rahula, is the spiritual achievement of one who is not afraid to speak a deliberate lie. Then the Buddha threw the water away, put the bowl down, and said, Do you see, Rahula, how that water has been discarded? <coughs> In the same way, one who tells a deliberate lie discards whatever spiritual achievement he has made. Wow. It's amazing that Buddha spoke so much about this, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Again, he asked, do you see how this bowl is now empty? In the same way, one who has no shame in speaking lies is empty of spiritual achievement. Then the Buddha turned the bowl upside down and said, Do you see, Raula, how this bowl has been turned upside down? In the same way, one who tells a deliberate lie turns his spiritual achievements upside down and becomes incapable of progress. Therefore, the Buddha concluded, one should not speak a deliberate lie, even in jest. Training rule on lying. (laughs) There is no offense. If one speaks playfully, if one is, if one is speaks too fast, is that a typo? If one is speaks too fast? I think it would be just okay. if, if one speaks too fast. If one speaks too fast, speaks playfully means speaking quick, quickly. Speaks too fast means thinking to say one thing, one says something else. If one is insane, if one is the first offender. Biko vibhanga pasitiya. One and I, TR, whatever, I don't know what that means. Bramali. That might be the translator. I don't know. Safe word in the tool, but to what extent, Master Gotama, is there the safe wording of the tool? To what extent does one say word the tool? We asked Master Gotama about the safe wording of the tool. If a person has conviction of his statement, this is my conviction. Say words the truth, but he doesn't yet come to the defined conclusion that only this is true. Anything else is worthless. To this extent, para Mahara, there is the safe wording of the truth. Once I describe this is the safe wording of the truth, but it is not yet an awakening to the truth. If a person likes something, holds an unbroken tradition, has something reasoned through an analogy, has something he agrees to, having pondered views, his statement, this is what I agree to, having pondered views, safeguards the truth. But he doesn't yet come to the definite conclusion that only this is true. Anything else is worthless. To this extent, Bharadvaya, there is the safeguarding of the truth. 
To this extent, one safeguards the truth. I describe this as the safeguarding of the truth, but it is not yet an awakening to the truth. I don't understand that. Does someone understand that? What safeguarding the truth is? I was confused as well. I understood it to mean that you come to a conclusion based on your experiences, whatever that means, your readings, your interaction with other people. And in this moment, you hold that as your truth, but it is not an awakened truth. It's not a fuller truth, but that you have, I, I read it as you have carefully considered um, that being kind to animals is a good thing, for example. I mean, I'm just pulling something out. Um, or that not telling the hunter about the bunny went by is the right thing. And that is a truth to you. That doesn't mean you're fully awakened to the truth, the, the, the truth of all existence, the truth of all that is. Did, did that make any better sense? That, that's how I understand it. It's the truth for you at the moment it may not be the truth ultimately for you, but, the, but in the moment, it is not a lie. Mm. But I will have a question there because in that way, that can be your true for you, but you need to be like in this open mind space. Because right. You, because you know that will be, is, this is like you are like craving with what you think is true. Do you know what I mean? Yes. But in that, in that moment, in those circumstances you're in, in that moment, it may be the truth, but that but your circumstances in your moment changes and it might not always be the truth but, but in the moment that you state it as your truth it's not a lie because at that moment it is your truth but it seems it seems there's a lot of discussion today about respecting science and what the the best experts are saying and so and and we know that whatever they're saying and believe is is kind of the truth of the moment and it may change but it's the best they can do but it seems it's in that kind of arena of um of respecting the best the best advice we can get right and that sentence right there says it but it doesn't yet come to the definite conclusion that only this is truth anything else is worthless so that there was a time we thought the earth was flat and that was truth. And then when more information became available, those who resisted that more information sort of clung to that idea and weren't open um, to, moment, to moment to moment changes in, in knowledge. So, yeah. But also maybe safeguarding would be protecting. And there are people who aren't necessarily scientists, but, but they say, you know, we listen to the science. So they're protecting it, even though it's not what they know, what, what they've discovered from their expertise. They have no expertise other than to respect the people who, who supposedly know best. Right. As opposed to what someone else is doing. It does seem like it, it's um, respectful of the scientific method you know that you're not going this is true like you're saying like the flat earth this is true it always is the truth it's like being open to to other um perspectives would would be a um okay thank yeah. you yeah and okay. even the Buddha, i just want to say, even even the dalai lama mm -hmm. said when science is inconsistent with Buddhist teachings, we change Buddhist teachings. So that's so, really safeguarding the truth. Yes. Yeah. So words well spoken. Five factors. Monks, a statement endowed with five factors is well spoken. 
not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by the wise. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. Oh, this is exactly what Francdale quoted, isn't it? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. I think it's like... It is. We read that, yeah. Yeah, it's right at the start of the chapter. Oh, actually, no, it's not. Never mind. I don't think. Anyway, okay. Four factors. Mendicants, speech that has four factors is well spoken, not poorly spoken. It's blameless and is not criticized by sensible people. What for? It's when a mendicant speaks well, not poorly. They speak on the teaching, not against the teaching. They speak pleasantly, not unpleasantly. And they speak truthfully, not falsely. Speech with these four factors is well-spoken, not poorly spoken. It's blameless and is not criticized by sensible people. Utter only speech that neither torments oneself or harms others. That speech is truly well-spoken. Utter only kind endearing speech, speech that is welcome. Speech that brings no harm to others is pleasant. Truth indeed is deathless speech. This is an ancient principle. The goal and the Dharma, so say the calm, are firmly established on truth. The speech the awakened one speaks for attaining unbending rest, for making an end to the mass of stress, that is speech unexcelled. Uh, noble and ignoble speech. Ignoble, unawakened speech is defined as speaking of things not seen as seen, of things not heard as heard, of things not sensed as sensed, of things not cog cognizized as cognizized. Noble awakened speech is defined as speaking of things not seen as not seen, of things not heard as not heard, of things not sensed as not sensed, of things not cognized as not cognized. Mm -hmm. You want to do a little more? Sure. Okay. Thank you. Speech like dung. These three kinds of people are found in the world. What three? One with speech like dung, one with speech like flowers, and one with speech like honey. And who has speech like dung? It's someone who is summoned to a council, an assembly, a family meeting, a guild, or to the royal court and asked to bear witness. Please, mister, say what you know. Not knowing, they say, I know. Knowing, they say, I don't know. Not seeing, they say, I see. And seeing, they say, I don't see. So they deliberately lie for the sake of themselves or another or for some trivial worldly reason. This is called a person with speech like dumb. And who has a speech like flowers? It's someone who is summoned to a council, an assembly, a family meeting, a guild, or to the royal court and asked to bear the witness. Please, mister, say what you know. Not knowing, they say, I don't know. Knowing, they say, I know. Not seeing, they say, I don't see. And seeing, they say, I see. So they don't deliberate life for the sake of themselves or another, or for some trivial worldly reason. This is called a person with a speech like flowers. And who has speech like honey? It's someone who gives up harsh speech. They speak in a way that's mellow, pleasing to the ear, lovely, going to the heart, polite, likable and agreeable to the people. This is called a person with speech like honey. These are the three people found in the world. And I think that that note indicates it's a translation by Biko Sujato. 
Uh, I have a question. The last one, the speech like honey, I conf I'm confused when they say it's someone who gives a harsh speech, but they say it's always very mellow, lovely. It's not contradictory between the harsh and the... Well, if you give up harsh, then what would remain might be speaking in a way that's mellow, pleasing to the ear, etc. because harsh is kind of rough and unpleasant. Okay. I so that so the other thing is kind of like a little bit in contrast. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Um, teachings on deciding what to say. Deciding what to say. Skillfulness. Master Gotama, Gotama, Gotama. I hold the thesis in view that there is no fault when one speaks about the scene, saying such was seen by me. No fault when one speaks about the heard, saying, such was heard by me. No fault when one speaks about the sensed, saying, such was sensed by me. No fault when one speaks about the cognized, saying, such was cognized by me. Do you think there's so much repetition because this was an oral tradition, orally passed down for so many hundreds of years before that's it was all I've written heard. down? That's what I've heard, yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it reminds me of in the Buddha's words, which is which is what that was. Yeah, it was orally passed down. Okay, was that who read that? Anne. Okay. Um, and I think you went a little too far. Can you back up just a bit? Uh, sure. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's I do not say. Yeah. I do not say, Brahman, that everything that has been seen should be spoken about, nor do I say that everything that has been seen should not be spoken about. I do not say that everything that has been heard, everything that has been sensed, everything that has been cognized should be spoken about, nor do I say that everything that has been cognized should not be spoken about. When for one who speaks of what has been seen, unskillful, harmful mental qualities increase and skillful, helpful, useful mental, mental qualities decrease, then that sort of thing should not be spoken about. But when for one who speaks of what has been seen, unskillful, harmful mental qualities decrease and skillful mental qualities increase, then that sort of thing should be spoken about. When for one who speaks of what has been heard, what has been sensed, what has been cognized, unskillful mental qualities increase and skillful mental qualities decrease, <coughs> then that sort of thing should not be spoken about. But when for one who speaks of what has been cognized, unskillful mental qualities decrease and skillful mental qualities increase, then that sort of thing should be spoken about. Better, Better than... Go on. Sorry, yeah, sorry, Kim. Yeah, feel free to knock that out. Better than a thousand useless words is one useful word which brings peace. Hearing which one attains peace. So sometimes my mother would say to my father, his name was Edmund. Shut up, Edmund, because he talked too much. So, you know, my kids and Linda, mostly Linda, learned that. So, <laughs> so they get to say that. And then we laugh. Deciding what to say, Buddha's example to Abhaya. Prince Abhaya said to the Blessed One, Lord, would the Tathagata say words that are unendearing and disagreeable to others? Prince, there is no categorical yes or no answer to that. Now at that time, a baby boy was lying face up on the prince's lap. So the Blessed One said to the prince, What do you think, prince, if this young boy, through your own negligence or that of the nurse, were to take a stick or a piece of gravel into his mouth, what would you do? I would take it out, Lord. If I couldn't get it out right away, then holding its head in my left hand, 
crooking a finger on my, of my right, I would take it out, even if it meant drawing blood. Why is that? Because I have sympathy for the young boy. In the same way, Prince, number one, in the case of words with the Tathagata nose to be unfactual, untrue, unbeneficial, not connected with the goal, unendearing and disagreeable to others, he does not say them. Number two, in the case of the words that the Tathagata knows to be factual, true, unbeneficial, unendearing, and disagreeable to others, he does not say them. Number three, in the case of the words that the Tathagata knows to be factual, true, beneficial, but unendearing and disagreeable to others, he has a sense of the proper time for saying them. Number four, in the case of the words that the Tathagata knows to be unfactual, untrue, unbeneficial, but endearing and agreeable to others, he does not say them. Number five, in the case of the words that the Tathagata knows to be factual, true, unbeneficial, but endearing and agreeable to others, he does not say them. In the case of the words that the Tathagata knows to be factual, true, beneficial, and endearing and agreeable to others, he has a sense of the proper time for saying them. Why is that? Because the Tathagata has compassion for living beings. Banisaro Bhikkhu, emphasis added. What a lovely way to end. Yeah. <laughs>